As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I think this deserves some explanation. You posted a picture of you on our Patreon with a uh, ghost band-aid on your forehead with a pun alert. (laughs) It was your boo-boo. Yeah, I got a boo-boo. Yeah. <laughs> should have been a boo-boo-boo, though, shouldn't it? Or maybe with the ghost thing, it could have been a boo-boo-boo-boo. A boo-boo-boo-boo. Boo-cubed. Whatever. Anyway, we've had a lot of people reaching out wanting to know what that was all about. Yeah, I love that the first guess was, did you hit your head on something? Because <laughs> yeah. that seems like something you would do. <laughs> no, it's, it absolutely does. Um, <laughs> I had... Um, I had a little bump on my forehead, and I went to the dermatologist to have it checked out, and so they biopsied it. I guess the the thought is that it's just it's just a little bit of skin cancer, so no big deal. Um, well, the results aren't in, and they said if if that's what it is, it's one of the most common forms. Yeah, and super easy to take care of. Real easy to deal with. Not so. a big deal. Yeah. So make sure to wear your sunscreen. Yeah, it's a good reminder <laughs> for us all. But uh, I'm glad you're going to be okay. And and thank you to everyone who reached out. It's really very nice. No worries. Although with that pun, I wouldn't have been surprised if they all canceled their memberships. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So uh, what it? Um, <laughs> what have I got for what, you? What do you yeah. have okay. right. f- um, for me? Quote, it is too true. And here they all are lying dead. Five swollen bodies lashed on their backs, mangled with ghastly wounds and clotted with gore, where lying conspicuously visible beneath with the lower extremities of two others projecting from their mate's cabin. These are the words of William Scoresby Jr., an Arctic explorer, scientist, and Anglican minister. The quote comes from his memoir, which he wrote. Memoir. Memoir. (laughs) Memoir that he wrote in 1835 called Memorials of the Sea. He was describing what he discovered one bright, sunny June 26th morning in uh, 1828. He was on a small boat. Uh, He and his brother-in-law, they were being ferried across Cork Harbor. Cork. 
Yes. Ah. Yeah, where my peoples are from. That's right. He was jarred from his thoughts when another passenger pointed out what looked like an unremarkable brig anchored in the distance. The man said he had heard that the crew of that ship had all been murdered. He believed that that was the ship, the exact ship. The Obra Dinn? I don't know what that is. It's that game that I just finished playing where I had to figure out why all the people in the boat died. No, no, but maybe it was based on that. (laughs) All of the passengers on board the ferry decided they wanted to go investigate too, except one woman. So they took her and they dropped her off. And then they all went to this uh, brig anchored in the harbor. Can you imagine being the one person who's like, no, I'm not interested in that. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody's like, oh, we got to drop her off first. So they get to the ship. Scoresby, along with others, made the grisly discovery. The officer in charge of the ship, for some strange reason, uh, just let them all on board. Oh. A bunch of sightseers in a commercial ferry. And (laughs) we're like, hey... um, this is not really on the list of potential excursions for this cruise, but uh, but perhaps you'll let us on board. The thought is that because Scoresby was a minister, he was a man of the cloth, and his brother was a magistrate, that it would be okay to let everybody on board. Um, um, that seems sketchy. His brother-in-law was the first magistrate on the scene. Did they pay to get on board? There was no fee, no. Mm. no it was included in their fare, apparently. Scoresby was captivated by what had happened. And over the following weeks, he interviewed the survivors of this tragedy and then followed the ensuing trial and even began what became a years-long correspondence with the murderer himself. Here's what happened. In the winter of 1827, the brig Mary Russell sailed from Cork County to Barbados. The commanding officer was Captain William Stewart, Very handsome man, 53 years old. Stuart? He had a shock of red hair. When they arrived in Barbados, they offloaded their cargo of mules, and then they loaded it back up with sugar and animal hides. That was kind of the thing they did. You know, they would bring stuff over and take stuff back. Right. So they're preparing the uh, Mary Russell for her voyage home. While they were in port, they encountered a Captain James Rains. He was an Irishman, and he had just been fired from his previous ship because of excessive alcohol consumption. Okay. So he needed a ride back home, and he convinced Captain Stewart to let him come on board. Stewart reluctantly agreed and uh, let him hitch a ride. The ship set sail on May 9th, 1828. So they're at sea, Mm -hmm. and it's been a long voyage so far, and I imagine everybody's exhausted. Captain Stewart falls asleep and has this vivid dream that Captain Rains was plotting a mutiny. He decides that that was a warning from God, and he starts thinking about it and obsessing about it and believing that Rains had reason to commandeer his ship. Oh, no. Number one, he was returning to Ireland in disgrace mm-hmm. and probably would never get another position as captain of, of a ship. He'd have a reputation as a drunkard. That would follow him everywhere. Stewart said, quote, I suspected him, therefore, that he wanted to turn pirate. And, and it was true that this was a valuable vessel. Mm-hmm. So Stewart starts looking for evidence. And pretty soon he's finding it, at least in, in his mind. He believed Reigns was colluding with the crew. Reigns would, uh, he was a captain, but he still bunked in the crew's cabin. And he would shave in the morning with the crew. And he would talk to them in Gaelic. Uh-huh. And Captain Stewart didn't speak Gaelic. And so he thought that they were, they were plotting against him. Sure. 
There was one sailor, his name was John Keating, who asked the captain if he thought that Rains was a skilled navigator, and that made him suspicious. And then another crewman, a John Howes, asked Stewart to teach him about lunar distance, which, of course, is a key navigational thing for the high seas. Mm -hmm. And so this really escalated Stewart's paranoia. At this point, he ordered a few of his trusted crew to sleep with him in his cabin. And he (laughs) surrounded... It was a long voyage, you know. Mm -hmm. And to help protect him, he kept an axe and a crowbar and several other weapons close to his bed. Yeah. <laughs> Handcuffs and Wait, no. Ropes no. <laughs> I was just saying, because, you know, you came home the other day and I was sleeping with a hammer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was away for a couple of nights, so she locks all the doors, including the bedroom door, and slept with a hammer. <laughs> I love you. So he became really obsessed with this idea that Reigns and his conspirators would take control of the ship and sail away without him. Okay. So at night, he would go up on deck and he would throw the log books and the charts and vital instruments into the ocean so nobody could use them. <laughs> so he's up there one night. It was June 18th, and he's throwing shit off the poop deck, I guess. I don't know. And uh, he sees first mate John Smith. Now, John Smith went back and forth to a supply cabin three times, and he thought that was very suspicious. Well, so is tossing off all the stuff that you need in order to (laughs) navigate your boat. That's true. I think he was having some sea crazy. He was having something for sure. Smith was, in fact, going to get supplies to fix a broken lamp. So the next morning, he demanded that his uh, crewmates tie Smith up. One of the sailors who was given the order said, quote, if we lash the mate without reason, he will take the law of us when we get home. But then they started watching how crazy their captain was behaving, and they thought, maybe we should just keep him calm. Mm. So they convinced Smith to let them tie him up. And he said, here, tie away. And then he was confined to a very small compartment under the cabin. And that didn't seem to help. Stewart still felt as though everybody was out to get him. It was a grand scheme of conspiracy and mutiny. On June 21st, the winds were brisk. The sails were full. The Mary Russell was sailing swiftly toward Cork. At that point, Stewart bewilderingly orders the crew to roll up the sails and slow the progress. They thought that was weird. Sure. But they complied. And then every 15 to 20 minutes, Stuart or one of his three young ship apprentices, all were young boys, they would come up to the deck and summon one of the men to the cabin with a different request, but they would never return. Basically, what he was doing was he was getting them to go one at a time, and then he was tying them up and putting them in like a cargo hole. Oh, jeez. Pretty soon, six men were missing. There were only two left on the uh, deck, John Howes and James Murley. A boy came out to get Howes. Howes got halfway down the steps to the cabin. He saw Stuart standing there brandishing his pistols. He said, what do you intend to do with those? Stuart started uh, babbling on about how he knew about the plot and that there was a conspiracy. And he <sighs> demanded that Howes get down in the hold with the others and allow him to you know, tie him up. Howes refused and started to run. So Stuart starts firing his pistols at him. Oh, man. But he, he doesn't hit him. At this point. You're on a boat, first of all. <laughs> yeah. Stop shooting guns. Yeah. At this point, House decides the best way to keep the captain calm was just let him tie him up. So he and Murley both agreed, and House ended up on a half deck, and Murley taken to the cabin where the other sailors were um, were, were already tied up. After several hours, House decided this is uncomfortable, mm. and so he loosens his ropes. By the next morning, Stuart comes down. He notices the ropes were slack. House jumps up and tries to rush the captain. 
House was shot three times by the young cabin boys. They had been convinced to carry out this plan with the captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he basically convinced them by threatening to kill them if they didn't. Sure. And if they did, he promised them a great reward, sufficient to make them gentlemen, he said. But House was able to hide himself among the cargo crates of sugar and animal skins. At this point, Stewart uh, saw a ship and he tried to flag it down, but they kept on going. Apparently, they thought he was a pirate or something. And he said later, at this point, he th- the thought struck him that surely if the crew were innocent, God would have directed the ship to rescue them. In a sense, death was, in Stewart's mind, the punishment befitting the crime of mutiny. He must do what God intended. And what God intended, in his mind, was to brutally murder his entire crew. Now, is there any evidence that he was, like, under the influence of some sort of bacteria or, like, had some had he eaten some bad shellfish? <laughs> no, there was no evidence. It, 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 and it was completely out of his character. It took everybody by surprise, which was one of the reasons why they, they kept complying with him, because mm. they thought, well, we've known him for years, yeah. and, you know. That's why I feel like maybe something had to have happened mm. something that did. affected him mentally yeah like maybe a parasite or something you know i mean come on these sailors they're they're scurvy nades that's pirate talk yeah so he bursts into the cabin and he yells the curse of god is upon you and then he starts beating them all one by one with a crowbar he then throws the crowbar down and picks up the axe and he just methodically hacks his way through each and every one of his crew members to make sure nobody survived His three apprentices, who were between the ages of 10 and 15, watched in horror. Now, first mate William Smith, still immobilized, was in the cabin below, hiding in the cargo area. He's the one that had been shot? Yes. Okay. And the blood from all of this carnage started pouring through a hole into the floor and onto him. So he made an attempt to kind of scramble away, but the captain heard him, and he looked through the hole, and he saw him, and he and he widened the hole with his axe, and then started battering Smith with a crowbar, and then uh, attempted to run him through with a harpoon. He then went up to his cabin and told his boys to fetch him meat and alcohol. Uh, he then finished his meal with a, a good smoke of his pipe. Well, I'm sure he had worked up quite the appetite. A murderous rampage will do that. Oh, Yeah. He later confessed that, quote, he thought no more of the bodies before him than they were a parcel of dead dogs. Oh, geez. He apparently felt that they had committed mutiny and that the appropriate sentence, death, was a reasonable price to pay. Stewart was able to successfully hail the next passing vessel, the Mary Stubbs. And he didn't seem too worried about what he had just done. In fact, when he got on the ship, he uh, told the captain, Robert Kalendar, that he thought that he was a valiant little fellow for killing so many men. Kalendar and his men helped Stewart locate Howes, who was miraculously still alive. During the harpoon attack, he had shifted sideways slightly, and the harpoon was stabbing piles of animal hides. Ah. And so Stewart thought, you know, he had killed him sufficiently, but no, he hadn't killed him at all. He had badly wounded him. So when they found him, Stewart <laughs> said to House, quote, I now believe you are innocent. I am sorry for having hurt you. It was God who spared your life. It- <sighs> Were the people that picked up this captain not a little bit concerned <laughs> that he had just nonchalantly mentioned that he murdered all of his crew? Yeah, I think they were. But again, they were just trying to detain him. Okay, okay. And so some of the crew of the Mary Stubbs got on the uh, Mary Russell with Stewart to help 
sail the ship into port. Okay. Soon after that, Stuart's paranoia began ramping up again, and he began to think that the sailors were plotting to kill him. So he threw himself overboard two times, and two times they pulled him back. The second time they thought, well, we're going to put him on the Mary Stubbs. We have better security there. So they put him on the Mary Stubbs, and he jumps overboard and swims to a nearby fishing ship who uh, take him away. Can they not, like, rope him to a pole or something? I don't what know. What is happening? I, I don't know why they didn't do that, because I would have put the man in shackles. That's another pirate term. Both the Mary Russell and the Mary Stubbs arrive in Cork Harbor about midnight on June 25th. They promptly report the murders to law enforcement. The fishing boat that brought Stewart ashore took him directly to the Coast Guard, so there was no manhunt necessary. He told the entire story in complete detail. Charges were filed. And a trial began. Was he shocked? Was who shocked? Was the captain shocked that there were charges filed? Oh. Because he seemed to think he was righteous. Well, the people who knew Stuart were shocked. He had had a lifetime of level-headedness and was actually known as a kind man. Mm. Nothing like this homicidal, axe-wielding lunatic who was dragged in chains to the jailhouse. It was apparent that he was suffering from some sort of mental illness. They began to wonder if they should factor that into the legal ruling. They charged him with murder, but specified that he was, quote, in a state of mental derangement at the time. The prosecution, of course, said that his mental condition should not be taken into consideration. If he murdered the crew, he was guilty. The defense, of course, said the opposite. Ultimately, the judge told the jury, you're going to love this, that it was part of God's divine plan. The question, therefore, is, quote, whether he acted deliberately by the instigation of the devil or whether he acted under the visitation of God, which inspired his senses. When it pleases God to deprive of man of understanding, it belongs not to any human tribunal to bring that man to punishment for that reason. The jury should understand that guilty and insanity are mutually exclusive. So he told the jury basically what to say. They deliberated for an hour and a half and came back with guilty and insane. Well, that's not what the judge wanted. The judge had already explained that nobody could be guilty and insane at the same time. So he told the court he would not accept the verdict. And he said, quote, the verdict is actually tantamount to not guilty, for the law does not recognize that as guilt. You can amend it, Without leaving the box, though, he told the jury. And uh, so Stuart... So why have a jury? Like, Yeah, well, Stuart uh, was sentenced to, quote, close confinement during his life or during the majesty's pleasure. He spent the rest of his life in confinement in Cork's city jail until 1830, and then the Cork Lunatic Asylum until 1851, and then the Dundrum Asylum for the Criminally Insane until he died in 1873 at the age of 98. William Scoresby would visit him quite regularly. In August of 1929, he visited him and Stewart said he had no wish for freedom. Quote, if I should be released, everyone would point at me and say, there goes the miserable man who killed his sailors. Scoresby wrote in his memoirs, surely the dreadful carnage was permitted by the providence of heaven because their hour was come. Yet, it was a mysterious as well as a dreadful visitation, and we must speak of the might of God's terrible acts with humility and reverence. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so my information came from Mental Floss, and uh, the excerpts were from William Scoresby's memoirs, Memorials 
of the Sea, published in 1835. Wow. Wow. Indeed. That was a, a real roller coaster. Now, the thing is, you know, there was a lot of uh, organized religion thrown into this trial, mm-hmm. which influenced the outcome. Sure. The trial today would be completely different, obviously, but the result would probably be the same thing, mm-hmm. not guilty because of insanity. So, I guess, in a sense, justice was served. The end. And now, that thing in the middle. It's a commonly known fact that an inmate that's sentenced to death is entitled to a last meal. They can choose whatever they want. Ever wonder why? The original reason why death row inmates receive a last meal was so that their ghosts wouldn't haunt the guards. Remember, this podcast is larger than it appears in your rearview mirror. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Box of Oddities. With Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got an email from Audra, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hi, Kat and Jethro. I recently left my job to start working with my husband at his pool company. The great things are getting to spend more time with him and finally having a sort of tan and losing my corpse complexion (laughs) and getting to listen to podcasts all day. The bad side, trying to remember that sometimes people are home. Last week, I very excitedly exclaimed, oh, my God, did you know you can fit two raccoons in your butt? (laughs) My husband was understandably confused, so I had to explain where I had heard that. And (laughs) then he replied, not in my butt. Uh, Fast forward a couple days later, and I'm working with him again, and we're walking to the truck. And he's explaining some of the pool equipment to me. And my response was, oh, so only one raccoon would fit in that particular butt in reference to the size of an opening. Right after I loudly said that, I heard a door shut, and I realized that (laughs) someone next door had been outside. Oops. I like to think two things happened. They learned a fascinating piece of information, Mm. or they will never be calling upon our company to clean their pool. (laughs) We may never know. Thanks for being awesome and teaching us weird crap. It's probably best you don't know, really. (laughs) Some things are best left to the providence of God. I'm with you. I Mm. think that they are grateful to you that now they know things that they didn't know they needed to know or or understand completely, really. This is one of the things I'm most proud about when it comes to this podcast is the uh, little bits of information, these little informative, bizarre nuggets that are just spreading out across the globe. So many are butt related, though. That is really weird. Our work here is done. What you got for me? So a while back, you talked about the bubonic plague. Yes. And that was very upsetting. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, one of the things that you mentioned was how a huge portion of the population was just gone forever. It's overwhelming. Yeah, societal structure came crumbling down. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think that you did a really great job talking about it. I I listened to the episode uh, when I was preparing for this one. One of the things that I thought maybe we could discuss a little further, though, were cures for the plague. Ooh. Now... Contemporary for the time. That's right. Oh, my. Now, we know that, of course, bloodletting was Mm -hmm. something that was a cure for everything during this time. What about uh, rectal raccooning? Was that a I thing? think that would let some blood, honestly. Uh, yeah, those I think little you're... fingernails. Good Lord. No wonder they always want to wash their food before they eat it. 
In reading about some of the cures that they had, or I should say cures, and I'm making quotation marks with my fingers Mm -hmm. because they were not cures, (laughs) I uh, came across this. The surest token of all to know the infected of the plague is if their dough arise and engender botches behind the ears or under the armholes. Right. Now, we know that that, that means the... Pussy boils. Pustules. Yeah. The bubbles. Bubbles. I really appreciate the use of the word armholes. Um, <laughs> I think that's really interesting. Uh, they didn't use the term armpits. I thought armholes is just wow. kind of a, a fun little tidbit. That's, it's not related to how it's cured no, in any way. I just no. thought armholes, huh? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. like they're talking about a shirt, <laughs> an armhole. Well, if you want to try to not get the plague in the first place, which I think is the best course of action, mm. drink wine. Okay, sure. One recipe for the discerning 17th century householder recommends an excellent drink against the plague. Its ingredients included rue, sage, and two pints of wine. Okay. That's your daily intake. Two uh, pints. Two pints. A day. Uh, yeah. It's a little more than your government recommended allowance, mm, but yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I can see where they would think that would work because you drink two pints of wine a day and, you know, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> it a limits your interaction. liquid-induced quarantine. Yeah. Sure. It's exactly. It's a wine-inspired social distancing program. <laughs> I don't know. Once I get some wine in me, I want to hang. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, in this period, alcohol was thought to have medicinal value and its consumption during the plague outbreaks was actively encouraged. Uh, Some doctors and medical writers believed alcohol worked as a plague preventative in two ways. First, the consumption of beers, wines, and spirits were believed to strengthen the body's key defensive organs of the brain, heart, and liver, Hmm. which is bananas. It's completely the opposite. Yes. Um, They were especially thought to be beneficial when taken first thing in the morning. Who made these rules? (laughs) It was recommended to- party with that guy. Wake up in the morning and uh, and start start it off right. Mm Mm-hmm. So day drinking. Liquid plague breakfasts. In 1665, minister and medical writer Richard Keppel claimed that it was good to drink a pint of wine or port in the morning against infection. He was also, by the way, emphatic about the medical benefits of tobacco smoking. So not a very good doctor. He he didn't Mm. do great. No. He didn't do great. Maybe he knew that it was bad and he was just drumming up business. Maybe, but there's not a lot of business to be had in plague victims. Many recipes for popular preventive and cure options were plague water, uh, which (laughs) contained wine and spirits Mm -hmm. as well as herbs. Plague water. Yeah. That sounds refreshing. Really, that is the opposite of what you should have called it. (laughs) It sends the wrong message. Okay, but if you can't avoid getting the plague, you want to treat it. Okay, these were preventative treatment. The wine and yeah. such was... Okay. Now, at some point, you did discuss the pigeon cure, and I can't remember... Oh, yeah, about the pigeon's butt? That's right. Yes, yes, Butts, exactly. once again, more butts. More butts. Butts all the time. So the 
Pigeon Cure was uh, <laughs> written about in the London Pharmacopoeia, which was issued by the College of Physicians in 1618. And it contained a remedy, again, with the, the <laughs> finger quotes, for the plague, which involved pulling off the feathers of living pigeons and then holding their bill shut and then holding their bare butt to the plague sore yeah. until they die. Um, now the, Ooh, the thought the plague victim or the pigeon, whichever one comes oh, first. Okay. Uh, the thought was that you were transmitting the plague from the bubos into the pigeon, and that's why the pigeon died. That's just bad doctoring. Yeah. Well, you know, you yeah. Know, you've got open pussy sores. Let's put an animal's ass on it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. But if the pigeon died, that meant that some of the plague went into the pigeon. So then you would get a fresh pigeon. You'd rip the feathers off of mm, that butt. Sure. You'd put that butt right on that boobo mm. and then uh, keep doing that until, uh, like you said, one of them died. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if you couldn't find a pigeon, uh, you could use chickens. Not as highly recommended. And infrequently, there was also frog usage in the similar way frog usage it was called the exploding frog cure oh my god and so you would um <clears throat> put you would force a frog onto the wound uh. of the plague victim um until the frog died that was the extent <laughs> of the uh, treatment yeah um the the goal was hopefully the frog would explode because it mm. would be so filled up with plague okay yeah and mm. then uh once once that happened, the the patient wouldn't have the plague anymore because it had gone into that frog that doesn't uh. is exploded now. Wow. Yeah. So this wasn't a great method, but it might have been better than living in the sewer. <laughs> no. Now, plague doctors are the worst. As as we have discussed on many occasions, at this time, the idea was that bad air caused yes. the plague yes and you know bad air by if it smells bad mm -hmm. so if it smells bad it could be dangerous so the thought was <laughs> as the plague was airborne bad air they thought that people should live in sewers because that was also bad air and that bad air would combat the bad air so it's kind of like fighting fire with fire only with stench <sighs> Fortunately, I I don't get the flu very often, mm. but I know that when I've had the flu, I can't find a comfortable position on a bed, Yeah, let alone in a sewer. But who am I to judge? Sewers may have been far more comfortable in those days. You know, I doubt it. As you can imagine, um, if you didn't die from the plague, you probably would get some sort of weird illness from living in a sewer. Mm, with open sores. Yeah. It's not a great situation. No. No. Don't, don't live in the sewer. That's our advice to you on the box of oddities. Don't live in a sewer, especially if you have open wounds. Another thought process for curing the plague was eating lots of fruits, veg, and eggs. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because you want to like boost your immune system by way of those minerals and vitamins, right? S sounds no, reasonable. That's not why. Really? Because if you're eating fruits and vegetables and eggs it's that means you're not eating milk cheese and meat and that's what you want to avoid it wasn't about what you were eating it's about what you weren't eating oh. and you didn't want to eat milk 
cheese, or meat. Because those are the kinds of foods that, if left out, smell bad, and that would give you the plague. <laughs> and that right. would give you the plague. I see. All right. Yeah. Okay. Don't look at sick people. <laughs> now, this sounds funny. Uh, the idea was that there were aerial spirits, you know, that could invade your mm. body through your eye holes if okay. you looked at the eye holes of someone who had the plague. Well, the eyes are the window to the soul. Right. And that's how things are transmitted. We all know. But this actually led to some real sad shit. Um, you know, people just abandoning their families mm-hmm. and locking their children in rooms and never speaking to them again until they starve to death. And, you yeah, know, things true. like this. It was a real sad time. People were so desperate to not not die. They were doing terrible, terrible things. Um, so don't look at sick people. It sounds fun, but it <laughs> turned out to be real sad. Uh, eating emeralds. Now, this was not something that the average commoner could try out mm. to see if it worked for them. But some of the uh, more uppity-ups, the not Dennis's, if you will, would crush the emeralds into a nice fine powder, mix it in with food or drink, and then consume it like some sort of potion, some sort of nice crystally emerald potion. That's an expensive way to get one's roughage. It is. It's not recommended, mm. but it really it's, it didn't really do anything bad to you as long as it was ground up fine enough. Moving right along. Obviously, you've got some of these inflamed lymph nodes, the buboes, usually in your armpits. I'm sorry, armholes. Yes. Or groin, these large pussy nodules. Mm, yeah. And yeah. So, so another cure was to seek out the buboes, open them up. <sighs> that would allow the disease to leave the body. And then you would have to smear human feces on the open wound. No! <laughs> Wrap it up tight. These are the complete opposite things. <laughs> Wrap it up tight. That you should be doing. You want to make sure that that poop doesn't get out. <laughs> My God. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes the poop would be mixed with tree resin or flower roots. But as long as there was human excrement mm. in there, you know you were getting it right. Okay. Yeah. Cures you of the plague. Gives you hepatitis. Sure, 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 sure. We've talked about how during certain points in history, and this was one of them, bathing wasn't really encouraged. It was thought that the layers of dirt would protect you from getting ill. Well, during this time, there was a thought that bathing should not be avoided and that it should be done regularly with vinegar and rose water and alternatively with your own urine. Oh, yeah. So bathe in your own urine, slather yourself in shit. <laughs> and live in the sewer. That's, I mean, a great place to get. Sure. All that uh, free free treatment right, right there. That's right. It's like a really disgusting spa. So if you've got... The plague and the thought is, okay, well, you should bathe in your own urine. Why wouldn't you also want to drink your own urine? Well, you want to conserve it for bathing times. Well, no. There were doctors who advised uh, to drink your own urine. Um, That's good. It's good stuff (laughs) for you. Also, if you want to really kick it up a notch, emerald style, drink the pus of lanced buboes. Like, oh my! Absolutely, God. get into that armhole, 
lance that open. And suckle off of it? Well, I mean, good luck reaching it. Right. But you can put it into a cup. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, that's at least somewhat civilized. Now, if all this fails, uh, you do have the option to self-flagellate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's never a good option. Now, there obviously were those that believed that the plague was a scourge from God for your evil deeds. So by walking through the streets with a whip and self-flagellating, you know, whipping yourself in public in front of other people, God wouldn't have a reason to give you the plague anymore because you've already suffered for your sins. See, that's efficient because you can do that. You whip yourself, you open up the uh, the, the, the pus nodules. Mm. Mm. And then the people following behind can suckle off your back. Why would you even say that, ew? (laughs) (laughs) I know it's my own fault. Oh, God. Um, So anyway, there's some ways to avoid getting the plague slash cure the plague. Slash uh, clog the sewers. Wow. That is horrifying. Yeah, there Uh, were some real ill-advised medical advice during that time. (laughs) Wow. I don't even want to think about it. Anymore. No? Wow. Nodule. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I really feel like I need to put my head down. At first, I thought it was the lack of air conditioning, and and now I'm realizing that it's this story. Okay. Moving right along. That's it. Bye. Uh, oh, man. Thanks. If you made it this far, I want to appreciate you publicly because for staying, it was hard, I know. We, oh, goodness. We, we love you. Yep. We, we love you. You're so uh, good. Uh, Sorry about that whole thing that just happened. So we're going to let you go so you can go lie down <laughs> and uh, hopefully recover from this. Uh, don't put any poop on your open wounds. And we look forward to seeing you guys next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. Leave your armpits alone. I'm sorry, armholes. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So, listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.